Well, good morning. Um, good to be back. I appreciate uh, Steph and uh, thank you. I appreciate Perry and John preaching over the last couple of weeks while I've been away. And um, it's just going to be easier if I answer the top 10 questions all at once. <clears throat> and so here they are. These, these are the answers. What did you do? Did it hurt? How did you do it? When was surgery? Number five, does it hurt now? Number six, how long in the brace? Seven, what's with the beard? <clears throat> Number eight, how's Lucy doing? Number nine, when will you play golf again? And number 10, can you still preach? Okay, there you go. No more questions. <laughs> uh, it's coming. All right. Have you loved being in the Gospel of Luke? The story of Jesus from Luke's perspective. Luke was a historian. He wrote carefully. He researched carefully. And he recorded the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and we have it. We're in chapter 20. We're going to do another section in chapter 20. And um, one of the things that I would like you to know in your mind, which is really kind of amazing, is we are going to culminate the Gospel of Luke on Resurrection Sunday on Easter. But where we are today in chapter 20 is Wednesday of Passion Week. Think of that. What's recorded in the Gospel of Luke from chapter 20 is Wednesday, and then Thursday, and by Friday morning, Jesus is on the cross. So it is really coming together, and it's very intense as we get to this section. And I want to begin by reading in verse 27, and just read the text for us. And then I want us to see something that I hope will change the lives of some of you who are here today. Some of you who have been around church, but you have never really considered who Jesus is and the real reason why he came into the world and what it means for this life and the life to come. And for those of you who have loved Jesus your whole life, my prayer for you is that as you read what Jesus says about this life and the life to come, it will really shape your values today. And you will be aligned with Jesus on the way he thinks about how to live in this life and how to prepare for the life to come. So we begin in Luke chapter 20 and verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man or the brother must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven, and left no children and died. And afterward the woman died. 
in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at the words of Jesus today, I pray the power of the Holy Spirit will open our own eyes and ears to hear what you would want us to see and hear from your own voice and your own heart so that hearing, we would have courage to have faith today in the day in which we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, one thing that's true about humanity is nearly all humanity has a longing to live forever, to live beyond this world. That longing for eternity beats in the heart of every human being. Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, said that God has put eternity into man's heart so that we would search for God, what he has done from the beginning to the end. All religions and worldviews have some conception of what happens at the end of life and what happens in the next life to come. They're not all the same, obviously, but they all think about end-of-life destinies. Most all of us in the room have thought about what happens when I die, most of us. But even if you think wrongly of reincarnation, for example, there is an aspiration that somewhere beyond this life, after 80 years, something different, something else will happen. All world religions think about this. But actually, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Still, nearly every culture has an end-of-life story that is told again and again. In the ancient Greek religion, um, it was common that a silver coin would be placed in the mouth of a corpse and then put into the grave, and that would pay the fare to cross the mystic river of death and enter into the land of the resurrection. Even in American Indian culture, Often, warriors would be placed into the grave with their bow and arrow, and sometimes their horse or pony, to ensure good hunting in the future world to come. You know that in many cultures, into the tomb go the treasures of every, you know, of people who had accumulated great wealth, they put their treasures in so that they would be provisioned in the next world. Why would you bury treasure? It was the sense that they might need it in the life to come. Um, and you know what? Even if those don't profess 
to believe in eternity? What happens after this if it's nothing? Many of them will work really hard in this life to build their name and to create a reputation and to do all they can to leave a legacy so that their name will be remembered for a really long time. It's in the mind of nearly every human being to think about that. In fact, it's part of what Paul said. If, if we who are Christians have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If it's only for this life, we ought to be pitied. And you know what? Nearly all Jews believed in the life to come. It's written in the Scriptures of the Old Testament. The psalmist says it again and again in Psalm 16. David said, therefore, my heart is glad and my heart rejoices. My flesh dwells securely for you, O God, will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave. And you won't let me see corruption. There was a hope in David's heart that you will make known to me the path of life. And his prayer was in your presence. There'll be fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The writing of the Old Testament is filled with these kind of promises. Psalm 23, Lord is my shepherd, and uh, I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but I fear no evil. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Psalm 46, uh, again, the psalmist, uh, 49, excuse me, the psalmist says, but God will ransom my soul from the power of the grave, for he will receive me. Every good Jew had an aspiration that when life ended, there was something beyond. And probably if everyone in this room was pressed, you say, well, I hope there's something beyond. What, what's at the end of 80 short years? Is there something beyond this life? Well, it turns out that in that day and in our own, there are some who allege there is no life after death. This is all there is. You simply live your life now and live it to the fullest and eat, drink, be merry, and then you die, and it's over. And our text picks up a group of people who actually believe that. They were religious leaders. It comes in verse 27. And there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, a life after death. They denied it, and that's why they were sad, you see? Okay, there you go. That's so cheap. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. They, they, they held that there was not a resurrection. The Sadducees were classically educated. They were powerful. They were wealthy. They were the aristocrats. They were the primary and um, most numerous constituent on the Sanhedrin, was the, which was the 70-person council uh, who were the leaders of Israel. They were most of, of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. And everything about their life was power and money and wealth and education. They were very strict legalists about the law, so much so that they primarily prioritized the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And the other books of the Old Testament were less important than the books of Moses, and they interpreted everything around that, uh, the books of Moses. Their chief distinctive then was that the, in the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, 
our Bible, um, there was no teaching of the resurrection there. So they denied that there was anything after this life. According to Josephus, when the body dies, the soul dies. There's no reward. There's no penalty. There's no life to come after this. You could reference in your Bible Luke in his other addition to the Gospel of Luke in Acts chapter 23 and verse 8. He writes that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angels, no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all of them. So you have on the Sanhedrin these two groups of people, Pharisees and Sadducees. We talk about them a lot. There weren't really many Sadducees as compared to um, Pharisees. They weren't well-liked. They were in the temple when Jesus turned over the tables and he drove them out and whipped them, and they were really mad at Jesus, and they are coming after him in this case. Um, but what's going to happen now our, our question last week was from the Pharisees, and now this is a question from the Sadducees, and they were usually at enmity with each other, in part because the Sadducees didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in the resurrection, they, they, didn't, they didn't believe in eternal life, and of course the Pharisees did, and so they conflicted theologically, but now they're going to unite together because it's Wednesday before Friday. You understand? They're all coming together because they want to put Jesus to death. Now they come together... Um, in order to mock the resurrection, because they don't believe in it, um, I, I might just say, if you don't believe in life after death, then all you're going to do is live in this life as greatly as you can. And the more you live in this life, not thinking about the next life, the least, less you think about the next life, and you block it out. And that's exactly what they did. And they would create these arguments mocking the conception of the resurrection. So the Sadducees, probably, and the Pharisees had many severe debates about what happens when you die then. I mean, if you die at 17, if you die at 50, if you die at 80, what are you going to be in the resurrection? Are you going to be the same age as when you die? If you die having lost all your hair, Will you have hair in the resurrection? If you die without clothes on, will you be naked in the resurrection? If you die and are raised, are you raised in the clothes you were in? Do you get new clothes? And there were all these kind of crazy questions that were asked and debated about the resurrection, which aren't answered in the Bible, and probably we can't answer them with certainty. And so they're bringing to Jesus, we're going to get them on the resurrection, and they create this absurd illustration. And it takes up in verse 28. They asked him a question, teacher. Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother died, but he has no children, he must take uh, the man, the man or the brother must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is a part of the command that God gave in Deuteronomy chapter 25 called leveret marriage, or and it was it was God's plan for in the case of of someone becoming a widow, that the family name would be carried on. God made a provision that this would occur as the children of Israel were getting ready to enter the land, and so that the progeny and offspring of the family lines who were going to inherit the land that God had set aside 
could happen. So they get kind of absurd with the illustration, and they say um, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and third took were likewise all seven left no children. Now, Jesus tells parables, and they tell one, but they are going to the absurdity that there are seven, and they all follow God's prescription of leveret marriage in order to provide an offspring, and each one of them dies when they get to the resurrection. Who's, who's who? How do they sort out? Now, let's just think about that illustration. If you were brother number five, if I were brother number five, I would have left town. I would have figured out somewhere else to be when that happened. You know, it's, it's really intended to be absurd. Like they think, oh, well, we got him. There's no way he can answer this question. And um, it almost seems like he can. Afterward, they die. In the resurrection, whose wife will the woman be? For she had seven. Well, you know, Jesus answers it in verse 34. And his answer in verse 34 is simply to clarify, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Now, I want you to underline in your Bible, sons of this age. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age, I would underline, circle that. So you have this age and that age, and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry or are given in marriage. What Jesus is saying is that in the age to come, there isn't marriage. Marriage is for this age. Verse 34, the sons of this age simply means people who are living in this world. That's us. We live in this time and space domain, and uh, we're living here. We're earthborn bound. And for us, marriage and children and sex and procreation and family are all very important part of what it means to be alive and to be human. It's for this age, the sons of this age, verse 35. But that age, that age is eternity. It's heaven. It's the age to come. It is living in the resurrection life and the resurrection of the dead, verse 35. In that domain, that age, that to come, there is neither marriage or any given in marriage. There's no more children born in heaven by humans who are going to be in the next world. You say, well, why? Verse 36 gives the answer. It's because they cannot die anymore. There is no death in heaven. So when you enter into eternity with God, there is not the need for marriage, for procreation, for the addition of children. Why? Because everyone who goes into heaven do not die, don't propagate. There is no need in heaven for relationships like earthly marriage, really because this phrase, we are equal to angels, and I take that to mean that we are... Um, We are non-sexual then, and we will be, um, we will not die, we will not procreate as angels do, 
and we are sons of God. We are in his, the life of his domain. So you have these three references. You have the sons of this age. It means to be characterized by life in this world. You have sons of that age to be characterized by that age and to be characterized by the resurrection. We are sons of God, which means we are characterized as children of God. So think sons, daughters, children of God. And we're sons of the resurrection. We're characterized by new life together. Jesus is making a very important point that in the age to come, marriage will not be a part of that. Now, some of you will be very disappointed in that, and some of you may be relieved. I don't know. Some of you are confused or sad and say, well, why is that? Why is that? Why will marriage not be a primary understanding of our relationship with each other when we are in eternity? It's because Jesus will be there. And the relationship that we will have with the, the Prince of Peace and the Son of God and the Majestic One and our Lord and Savior and Redeemer and the Great I Am, we will be in His presence and we, I think, will know each other. But the whole concept of how we experience life in marriage here on earth will not be the same in heaven because we will be living out the reality of what marriage is intended to illustrate today in this age, and that is the relationship of Christ to his church. That's the illustration. Marriage is an illustration of Ephesians chapter 5. L look at it. it. It is an illustration of he is the bridegroom and we are the bride of Christ. We, are, we, we will be with him, and that relationship to Jesus will eclipse every other relationship on earth. Get that? They, they weren't sure, and so they had this really crazy illustration, and our relationship with Jesus will eclipse all of that. Okay. And then it's as if Jesus says, but that's not the big issue. A marriage, you know, that's how marriage is going to be, so stop with your silly illustration. It's buffoonery. Verse 37, that's really... The question. Let's get back to the question. But that the dead are raised. He brings him back. The dead are raised. He's talking to the Sadducees who don't believe they're in a resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses. Why does he go to Moses? Because that's all they read. They only read Moses. They believe in the books of Moses. And he goes right to it. Even Moses showed and you would say, well, there's no resurrection in the first five books of the Bible. No, even Moses showed a passage about the bush. This is Exodus chapter 3, where God calls Moses to come over to the burning bush. And Moses said, I think I'll go over there and see it. And he gets near, and he hears a voice out of the bush that says, Moses, stop. Take off your sandals. The place you are is holy ground. And then in Exodus chapter 3, Moses takes off his shoes and he wanders over there. I thought I had it clipped. There it is. And so I will turn aside and see this great thing. And when the Lord saw him, he called out to him. And Moses said, here I am. And he said, don't come near. Take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of Abraham. And I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. Exodus chapter 3, the very text that these 
Sadducees would have been clinging to and holding on to. They go right to that. And he doesn't say, I was their God, but I am their God. And the way it's spoken is that I currently am the God of Abraham. What does that imply? Abraham's alive. I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the God of Isaac. They are alive. I remain their God because they remain. It's not I was their God when they were. It is a a present reality. And will you notice that in each case, God is saying, and Jesus is repeating, that God says, I I was Abraham's God. I was Isaac's God. I am, I am, um, each of theirs. It names them individually. Why? Because God is a personal God with individual people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he is their God. He is their God. And they are personally his. I love that Jesus says this. Verse 38, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. For all who live, live to him. They're all alive in him. God is not the God of the dead. To God, all who live in him are alive. And death is not the end of existence. When you die in him, there is eternity, eternal life for all who belong to him. Right? That's why Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, yet shall he, everybody, live. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection and he is alive. And and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive and God knows them by name. And anyone who belongs to him is alive. I guess we, we skipped over that phrase in the last section about being worthy. He was worthy for the age to come. How do you get worthy for the age to come? It's through the grace of God. No merit of our own, but what God did. And God saved Abraham. He saved Isaac. He saved Jacob. And he saves us through Christ. And the answer in this moment from the Sadducees, and probably in verse 39, are the other Pharisees who always believed in the resurrection, they they said, teacher, you've spoken well. We like what you're saying. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees have this little intramural discussion. And now I think it's the Pharisees, the scribes who are saying, yeah, you got that right. Tell the Pharisees, tell the Sadducees. There is a resurrection. God is alive. And from that time, they no longer dared to ask him any questions. It was over. Jesus confronted the Pharisees. And now he's confronted the Sadducees. And what he says is, I'm alive. I'm a living Savior. God is alive. And in the resurrection, life after death, there is life for those who are there, which sort of begs the question, how do you get there? Now, the text sort of goes on, and Luke um, excludes a verse that Matthew includes in the next section. And we just very quickly have to look at it. In the next section, the next verses, we read um, verse 41, but he says to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? In Matthew's account, he records Jesus asking them, what do you say about the Christ? 
whose son is he? So in this parallel passage in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus asked this question, who do you say about the Christ? Whose son is the Christ? And what do they say? He's David's son. And every Jew would have said that. Every Jew would have said, David, king of Israel, is going to have a descendant. It's going to be the coming Messiah, the Christ. So when Matthew records this, he asks the question. Luke doesn't record that. He, he simply says, um, th this section, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? And then he begins to quote Psalm 110, which every Jew would have known as a messianic psalm. In the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is David saying, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 is a psalm of David, a messianic psalm. Every Jew knew it, and it has this funny thing. That David is saying, the Christ is my Lord. So Jesus says, how can David say that the Christ is his son and the Lord? Get it? It's amazing. And there's only one answer. And if you haven't been paying attention, could you just come back for a second? This is the reason why this whole conversation about the resurrection can take place. David can say that the Messiah Christ is both his son through the line and lineage of a birth order and can call his son Lord is because that Christ is the incarnate God-man, Jesus Christ. He is both. Jesus is asking the question to the Sadducees, how can, how can David call the Christ Lord and be his son? Is because he is the God-man, second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the eternal God who came into the world. He is both the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is Lord, he is Messiah, and his work was to go to the cross to pay for our sins to be buried in the ground, and to be raised again. Christ is the one who rose again so that now there can be a resurrection of all of us. What a good place to say amen. That, that's how it happens. That's where Jesus is going. The Sadducees say, no resurrection. Jesus says, no, there is a resurrection. It's in the Pentateuch. It's in Exodus. Moses taught it. And the Messiah was coming. The God-man Christ he is both the Lord and he is man, and he's going to the cross in two days. He's going to be crucified, he's going to bury, be buried, and he's going to rise again. And that's what leads us to be able to say, because Christ died, was buried, and rose again, we too can live. Here's a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where it sort of ties it all together. This is where Paul brings it together. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Everybody said he really has. Do we, be we believe Jesus died and rose again? He is the first fruits. He's the first one to be raised from the dead, never to die again. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he died again. 
But Christ is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man came also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made. Everybody, there is possibility for you to have eternal life, but it's only in God's solution of Christ. And apart from Christ, you cannot have eternal life. See what I'm saying as we started out this morning? Whether or not you understand the resurrection of Christ, that he is alive and he has opened heaven and he taught these Sadducees who denied it, there is a resurrection. God gives eternity to those who trust in him, to those who see him as the answer. He who went before, and if you trust in Christ, you too will live. I would like to encourage you not to leave today without the absolute certainty that you know Christ is your Savior and you know that if you were to die tomorrow, you know where you would be a moment after you die. There is eternal life and it's found in Christ. And He did make it possible by His death on the cross where He took our sins upon Himself. And we're going to take communion this morning and we're going to sing an Easter song together about the resurrection. Because it is our life that Christ died and rose again. And the way we're guided to prepare ourselves for communion is to take a moment of silent prayer and reflection and think about what Jesus has done for us. And I tell you, I, I really want Calvary Bible Church to be a congregation of prayers. And I'm going to invite you to pray silently. And I'm going to stop talking in just a moment. And the way we prepare for communion is simply say, Lord, examine my heart. Is there anything in me between my great Savior, Jesus? My relationship to you, Lord Jesus, when I step into heaven is going to eclipse every other relationship of my life. I want it to be right now. Am I right with you? And God promises to reveal to us, uh, is there any wicked way in me? Is there anything I need to turn away from? And I want to encourage us to just take a moment of silence, examine our hearts. If God prompts you to turn away from a sin, to confess, Lord, I was wrong this week when I yelled at my wife, when I, whatever, ask God's forgiveness. And I want to assure you that because he died for your sins, he is faithful and just, and He will forgive your sins, and He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It is Christ who forgives fully, right? So let's all pray. Ask God to reveal to you, is there anything between me and you, God? And we'll all pray silently, and then we'll take communion together. If you're helping to serve, would you come? But let's pray silently. Lord, reveal to us.